This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we take your toughest maintenance questions and we try to solve them. We don't always solve them, but we try to solve them. <laughs> so if you have a question, especially if it's a tough question, uh, reach out to us at podcasts at AOPA.org. And if you like the show, make sure to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode, even if we sound like frogs. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to Sorry. talk about that. <laughs> and uh, if you'd like to uh, get on our email list for our monthly uh, newsletter and, uh, and some interesting maintenance stories, I'm actually writing up a couple of them right now to, be, to send out. The easiest way to do that if you're in North America is to pull out your mobile phone and text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And a little um, a little uh, text bot will ask you for your email address and put you on the list. Again, text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on our list. Sorry about the frog thing. Just, would, you, you know, would you explain yourself? Yeah, Ribbit. Well, Ribbit. I, I have some sort of virus. It's not COVID like it was last year. The so. frog virus. The yeah, deadly. The, the frog virus. I think that's the thing. So I, I don't feel nearly as bad as I sound, but uh, I'm at the, I think I'm like day 12 of a 10 day something. Yeah, oh it's my. Just, it's just hanging on. I'll survive. You, you took a week off of work to try to recover from this? I, I did miss, um, probably missed about, Three or four days, yeah. Mm, that's and, pretty bad. Uh, and yeah. and on one of those days, you uh, very graciously uh, gave it to Helen, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I have this theory, you know, we had a family gathering, and uh, I think Helen's symptoms presented a couple of days later than mine, but a couple of the grandkids got sick, and one of the children got sick. Mm. So I, I don't know that I am the perpetrator. I I, I, I may be. I'm gonna. I'm gonna claim that anyway. Try not to be. So not that I know uh, a lot about kids, but I've heard kids are germ magnets. They're just walking. <laughs> they're just walking petri, petri dishes. dishes. Yeah, yeah, they're they're horrible in that way. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna try real hard to uh, keep the mute button close by for when those <laughs> those <laughs> the the coughing that cannot be stopped. Uh, well, I'll, I'll hit that and okay. try to save the editors a lot of work. Yeah. So if we see your mouth moving but no sound, we'll right. know what's going on. Yeah. Just you can you can tell me, Paul. You need to unmute. And it's been a particular problem with the ads that have come out because I've gotten 
like with the 210, I've gotten a huge number of phone calls. Oh, I'll bet. And I've even, I had a couple of days where I, I felt like coming to work, but I couldn't talk. And so <laughs> it's been very frustrating. Yeah, I'll bet your phone's mm. been ringing off the hook. You're probably the place in the country for the Cessna, over the carry-through SPAR AD. Yeah, probably. And the thing is, we already have a packed schedule, like every other shop in the country. And so I'm thinking about the, the AD on the Continental engines as well. Right. How yeah. in the world we're going we're gonna to fit these in? We've turned away, uh, well, Blake and I were talking about it this morning. We've probably turned away 15 210 spar inspections just because we're packed with existing 210 customers that that will have to have it and you know we want to accommodate but man i just i don't know how it's gonna happen this is yeah this is a huge problem because the that we're we're in the middle of a gigantic mechanic shortage in general aviation I wrote an article back in 2020 titled The Looming Mechanic Shortage. Yeah. It's, not pilot. it's not looming anymore. <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> and uh, an awful lot of shops are, are, are booked up a year in advance. Uh, they tell their annual inspection customers to schedule their next annual as they're picking up their airplane from the last one because the, the schedule is so packed. And then something like this Continental AD or this... Uh, or this uh, Cardinal and 210 uh, AD comes along and there's just no capacity in the system to deal with it. And aircraft owners are unfortunately going to wind up on the beach for a while because there's just nobody to do these things that are being mandated. Well, the in the 210 when you got to be careful, there's a lot of people that can do engine work. Most shops, you know, can pull cylinders. But like the 210 and the Cardinal, once you take it to the shop for the inspection, if anything is found, that is probably going to be the shop that's going to replace the spar. And so you need to really consider, are they capable? Are, are, you, are you saying no ferry permits will be permitted? They have stated that. I think there will be some allowance depending on what's found. When but you say you, they've stated that, are you saying the AD says no? In the AD, no? yeah. It's, it's grounded until, until the repair is made. And there's no further flight. I think some airplanes will be able to get uh, ferry permits, but the majority, if they're actually, if, if they find a bad, problem, yeah. you're not going to get it. And I'm thinking mostly of the Cardinals. The, the 79 and newer 210s all came from the factory with uh, corrosion inhibiting. They're, they're all primed. And they're probably in good shape. I think what we're going to find on those is damage from upholstery screws, which is... <laughs> It's what 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 failed the two that I know about that were replaced. One was replaced at my shop. So it creates a um, hole and it goes through the corrosion proofing and then it becomes corroded in the hole. No, it doesn't. Or it's just a hole. It's just the, the it, hole just and that's hole. enough to trigger. That's that's all you got to have. If something is deeper than, depending on where it is, 10 to 30 thousandths of an inch and a screw can make a hole easily. We had one that had four holes that were eighth inch in diameter and an eighth inch deep. Oh, that was an earnest yeah. mechanic with a oh, big yeah. screwdriver. <clears throat> I'm telling you, it held that headliner <laughs> yeah. plastic just beautifully. <laughs> thing wasn't just going anywhere. Per- it wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> this thing wore a, a dent. You called it a hole, but it's like a like an well, inch. These were actually a drilled hole. Oh wow! Uh, oh my! Ones, yeah. Oh, he, ones, he drilled. Use, oh god! They drilled. Yeah. They I've seen. Threaded, I've though. seen that with wing spars, where some yeah. well-meaning yeah. mechanic will. Yeah. Well, then Not others will put, uh, 
the uh, PK screws or sheet metal screws in through to hold it. And those little sharp ends just sit there and they just vibrate and nobody pays any attention. And two years or three years later or whatever, there's these nice little hogged out holes that, uh, and they've gotten too deep and they're stuck. It's not really corrosion. So, but the Cardinals, I think are going to be, there's a lot of Cardinals that are corroded and the last scare, the initial 210 Spar AD, I think got a lot of people's attention and got the Cardinal people looking. I know CFO did a great job of encouraging people to, to look. Get an inspection, yeah. Get an inspection done. Now it's an AD. So I think there's going to be some Cardinal ones found. Fortunately, they're a lot easier to change than a 210. But oh, the Spar, if you have to spar replace is easier, the Spar. Yeah, if you have to replace it. But there aren't any spars but, to replace but, it with. And you don't want <laughs> you don't want Joe Mechanic working off the back of his pickup truck to be changing your, your spark no. carry through structure. That's the It's a job. Wow. It's, it's a problem. job for a, a structural repair facility to do. I can't imagine. Uh, I mean, I yeah. look at that thing when I take the headliner down and it's massive and all the skin is, you know, over it. It's it's all enclosed. You'd have to peel the skin back on the top and um, there's big rivets and there's big bolts driven through to hold the wings on and the wings have to come off, right? I mean- yeah, the wings come <laughs> off first. The nice thing is you don't have to jig anything uh, because the, the carry-through is bolted to the frame. And once you bolt it, the new one to the frame, it's lined up. There's no alignment to do. So you don't need to build any kind of jig or special fixtures. But anyway, so that's that's special with that one. But the, the engine AD... Now I we're switching the, gears. Now this is the well, TCM. Yeah, this is the TCM thing. And as Mike was saying, I don't know how we got a call from Cirrus, as I'm sure a lot of shops did. Uh, and the question was, this is happening. This how is many when, can you do? <laughs> how many can you do? When can you start? Uh, and, and I'm sure they called a lot of shops, and they were looking for shops that could do the Cirrus owned airplanes as well, because Cirrus, as a lot of people know, grounded their their fleet, not not the airplanes that they've sold, but the ones that Cirrus still owned and had control of, and which I thought was a pretty that was a pretty bold move. It set quite a statement, seems to me, how important they thought it was. It was it, big. It always goes back to I would much rather have a tried and true engine or airplane part or whatever. I don't want something. I don't want to be an early adopter. Yeah. Oh, this is something a new. classic infant mortality failure because yeah. yeah, unfortunately, neither Continental nor really the FAA has been as forthcoming as I would like to have seen in terms of telling us exactly what was found to trigger this AD. Um, and you know, so that leaves us kind of speculating about it because nobody's really talking. And I can I can kind of understand why Continental isn't talking because their legal department probably doesn't want to provide any any information for plaintiff lawyers to use. But I've always thought that if the FAA is going to mandate something, there ought to be a requirement of transparency for them to explain exactly what persuaded them that that this is an unsafe condition and that this is the appropriate applicability. I mean, my my sense about this Continental AD from just from circumstantial evidence, and and I can't prove it because nobody's talking. 
is is that we know that there were three counterweight releases due to this problem. Two on the ground and one in the air. And we're pretty sure that they all happened in Cirruses that were just coming out of the factory. So they probably all happened at extremely low engine time, you know, like 10 hours or less. Yeah, or initial Um, startup. And and Continental (laughs) came out with a service bulletin that said, you know, if you've got over 200 hours time in service, don't worry about this. Basically, what they were saying is if it was going to come apart, it was going to come apart a lot quicker than 200 hours. And then the FAA said, well, they haven't, Continental has not provided us enough evidence to convince us that there's no risk for engines over 200 hours. So we're going to include all of these engines, every single crankshaft assembly that was assembled in in Mobile from, uh, I think, what was it, June 2021 forward. But I would love to know more about those three cases and exactly when they happened. Because my sense is they probably happened at super low time. And that if they wanted to, and, and, and they were and they, you know, the government tends to be super risk averse. Mm-hmm. I mean, Continental is going to be pretty risk averse because they don't want to get sued, but the government's even more risk averse. <laughs> but my sense is that, that, that they probably could have confined this AD to a much smaller group of engines, ones that, that, that had no more than say, more than say 50 hours time in service, but nobody was willing to take that risk. And nobody's really talking about what they found and when they found it. And, and so the fact that they flooded the market or the support market with all these engines that are going to need inspections could have two implications. One is that there's going to be a lot of downtime because people won't be able to get into a shop. Uh, and the other is there's a lot of aircraft that are going to have unnecessary maintenance done to them by just pulling the cylinders to do this inspection, which potentially could cascade to further issues if they're not retorqued correctly and put back on correctly. Yeah. So it's but, bad and for so everybody. It, it would, from that standpoint, Colleen, from the collateral damage standpoint, and that that's another problem that I have with the AD system, that... The FAA is required to go through fairly extensive analysis before they make a determination that an unsafe condition exists that 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 warrants an AD. They are not required to do any analysis of what risk the remedy <laughs> creates, and 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 there have been. A number of ads. I'm not saying this one is one of those that were where, where the cure is worse than the disease, <laughs> but it's it does seem to me that the procedure for ads ought to be changed so that the the issue of of how much risk is entailed in doing this thing that you have to take, I uh, you know like for the the wingspar ad is a pretty good example. How how much risk is involved in 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 a, in a wing spar carry through structure being replaced by a shop who's never done one before? Yeah, is there you know, risk? The, the risk is, I think, the risk of a problem with the installation of the spar carry through is fairly minimal. 
I mean, it's bolted in place. You got a lot of rivets. Rivet stuff. Yeah. Even if they do a sloppy job on the rivets, they're going to hold together pretty good. I don't worry about that. I worry about the flight controls because they mm. take the wings off. Oh, yeah. right. And so you've, everything. you've interrupted electrical, which is no big deal. Uh, fuel delivery fuel, yeah. can be a big, big deal. And flight controls. Flaps, not too worried about flaps, but ailerons are a big thing. And the rigging may never be the same again. The, the rigging, <laughs> well, it may not have been right to start with. but Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah those are, I worry more about that, the, all the peripheral stuff. Because most of the time things get bolted on okay, but man, all the all the other little things. And you talked about, you know, in the in this bar thing, there was a lot of known evidence that and and even the FAA made it pointed out that here was this spar failure in Australia. That's what got it all started quite a few years ago. And then they had a lot of data after inspecting a lot of spars. And when they came out with this new AD, they even referenced some of that and said, oh, here's why we're doing it. Which to me, whether you agree with it or not, it, at least they kind of showed the track that they were on. But uh, I'm with Mike on this, on the engine deal. And, and it's not that we shouldn't be doing the AD. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. But when people are asked to, to do something that's not only expensive, but potentially dangerous, you really want to you want everyone to have this feeling that it's they buy it. into yeah. the urgency, right? Uh, that this is worth the risk. And I think that would be, I don't think the FAA is, I don't mean this in a in mean or harsh way. I don't think they have the capability to do a risk analysis of, of the potential problems that the fix is going to cause. Um, oh, I think they have the, you, the you capability. I just don't think they have the mandate to do that. Well, yeah, they obviously, yeah. Okay, our first question is from Michael, whose turbo normalizing system isn't being very normal. Go ahead, Michael. <laughs> uh, thank you. I love the show and uh, love the chemistry. I'm also very glad I don't have a uh, Cessna 210 anymore or my <laughs> not uh, part of the 2000 affected by the AD. But uh, I do have a turbo normalized 1979 Bonanza. It's a Western Skyway system as opposed to the more popular uh, Tornado Alley. Love the system, except I have a nagging problem where if I go to full throttle on takeoff, it'll overboot. And so I have to go to partial throttle, 29.6 inches of manifold pressure. And I get a little lower than desired fuel flow, 28 to 30 gallons an hour, as opposed to 34, 33 gallons an hour. The controller's been overhauled. The wastegate uh, went out to main turbo, who also did the controller overhaul. They inspected the actuator. They said it looked good, put it back on, readjusted the system, same problem. And so the question is, now what? Is, is this something that changed suddenly or this came on over a period of time or it's always been this way? Always been this way, ever since uh, I've been playing in uh, 2020. Okay. Well, I, I, I have a couple of comments. It's, it's a very, very bad idea for you to try to 
obsessively limit your manifold pressure to 29.6 with the throttle. Just let it do what it wants to do. Continental basically says that boosting up to three inches over redline is a non-event. Uh, what is a big event is not having enough fuel flow. We can kind of speculate as to why you're having this variation in manifold pressure from one flight to another. But the fuel flow is determined by the upper deck pressure. Okay, you've got a fuel pump that has an aneroid on it that is referenced to upper deck pressure. And it, it modulates the fuel flow according to to upper deck pressure. So if you're getting less than the 34 gallons, it's because the upper deck pressure isn't, isn't as high as it should be. There's not much that can go wrong with that, that fuel pump. It can be misadjusted, but it's not going to vary from one flight to another. But, but I would encourage you not to try to limit your manifold pressure to 29.6 the way you seem to have been doing. You seem to think that's really important. It's not. What's important is the fuel flow. Now, look, if, you feel, if, if your manifold pressure went to 38 inches, yeah, I, I would say, okay, yeah, probably, probably ought to throttle back and land and figure out what's wrong. But, but, but if it goes to you know 30 or 31 or 32 inches, it's just don't worry about it. I just let it happen. But it, by pulling actually, back the... Uh, is that actually a red line on this airplane? Because on the Tornado Alley and the Cirrus, the red line is at 32. And when you, you know, the early takeoff or the first flight of the day, it's common that manifold pressure runs to 32. And then after you've flown for 30 seconds to a minute and, the, and everything settles in, oil temperature settles, it comes down to right around 30 and everything's where you want it. I'm, I'm just not familiar with the Western Skyways system it the does other, the other, oh go ahead red line at uh 29.6 uh they do talk about uh over boost on the first flight of the day but my manifold pressure as the system warms up doesn't come down it goes up yeah that's different yeah that's well, what he said yeah but but how but how high does it go up you you're not you're not seeing major excursions above redline, right? You're just seeing a couple inches or so. Correct. So just just let it happen. Just let it happen. By 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 throttling back, you're 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 reducing fuel flow pretty dramatically, and that's got to be bad for the engine. Much worse for the engine than than a, than a couple inches of over over boost, which is really, you know, consider that redline like a dotted redline. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the other thing that's a little weird about the system because you sent us a diagram of the fact that that they are they are using a, a slope controller and and then kind of crippling its function uh, by uh, normally this the the slope controller that 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 top port that's getting the upper deck air reference. That's normally supposed to get manifold pressure. And then the bottom port, which they sort of have jumpered to the top chamber, that's supposed to be referenced to, um, uh, to upper deck pressure. 
And what's inside that controller is a sealed aneroid, which gives an absolute pressure reference. Uh, but the, the aneroid, instead of being fixed to the housing like it would be in, a, in an absolute pressure controller, sits on a diaphragm that moves based on the differential pressure between the top chamber and the bottom chamber. And the idea is that at reduced throttle settings, where there's a significant difference between upper deck pressure and manifold pressure, the diaphragm moves and it, and it reduces the upper deck pressure so the turbocharger isn't working so hard. So it's kind of like a a VAPC, a variable absolute pressure controller, except instead of a mechanical linkage to the throttle, it, it's usually it kind of has a pneumatic linkage to the throttle. That's the idea. So they've they've taken this this slope controller and they've hobbled it by by connecting the top and bottom chambers together, uh, so that the diaphragm uh, basically is immobilized. The the slope controller thinks you're at full throttle all the time, even if you're not. So it, it, I am not sure why they did that. If they wanted an absolute pressure controller, why they didn't just put a standard just absolute pressure controller in. Yeah. And I'm not <clears throat> sure w whether using a slope controller in this non-standard fashion has any kind of a, any kind of weird effects that could account for some of the things that, that you're doing, but, they they're clearly taking a slope controller and trying to coerce it into being an absolute pressure controller for reasons that I have no idea. It would be it would be super interesting to replumb that the way <laughs> the way God intended it to be plumbed and see what happens. You know, stand back, science project, <laughs> minor alteration, right, Paul? I'm sure that's yeah, <laughs> just a log entry. It's all you need. <laughs> I did ask Western Skyways about uh, the slope controller and why they chose it. And uh, the answer I got was uh, before our time. Well, uh, the, the answer was probably they had a lot of them in inventory. Sitting at around, time. Yeah. <laughs> so what are we, we going to do with these all up. these? Yeah, we can get rid of these. <laughs> like all the straight slotted screws that uh, the Brits still use on, on their airplanes. It's like we have a bazillion of them left over from World War II. Let's just keep using these. But I, I, I mean, I think the main comment is don't 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 be so obsessive about trying to limit manifold pressure to redline. Be be more concerned about fuel flow, because a few inches of of additional manifold pressure isn't isn't gonna isn't gonna hurt anything. Well, great question, and and yeah. lots of good data to describe it too, which really helped us, Michael. So thank you for being so thorough. Again, love the show. Thank you. Take care. See you, Mike. So our next question is from Paul, which is always nice. Someone whose name I can remember throughout the entire call. So the crux of my question comes back to, I fly a 1965 Piper Cherokee with the Lycoming. Fantastic little airplane. So got about 1,800 hours on the engine. I recently got very close to having to remove a cylinder. Ultimately, did not have to, which was good. Awesome. Um, but it got me thinking that the instrumentation on the engine just is not adequate. Uh, it still has mostly stock. Yay. <laughs> so my question for you guys is, as I go out and start looking at and shopping for an engine monitor, 
what should I be looking for? Well, what are the features I need? What are some of the oh. gotchas that I need to be aware of? Uh, for oh. example, yeah. uh, gasket probes versus uh, screw-in probes for CHTs. That's been talked about here and placement. So I was hoping to get into some of the details for everybody about your recommendations on engine well, I think all the engine monitors offer both gasket and, and uh, bayonet-style probes or whatever we want to call those things that screw into the well. And uh, hopefully you, 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 you'll you always use the, the kind that screw into the well because spark plug gasket probes have, have issues. One of the things that I think is, the mo- or is, is very, very important when you're selecting an engine monitor is whether it has user programmable alarm let, uh, settings or whether they're hardwired to the manufacturer's red line. A lot of the engine monitors that, that are the fancier ones that are a primary instrument replacement where you take a bunch of steam gauges out and you put this thing in were certified to be hardwired to manufacturer's red lines, which makes the alarms essentially useless. I don't want to know when my CHT reaches 500, <laughs> you know, I want to know when it reaches 420 or something like that. So uh, that's one of the things I would, I would uh, definitely look for is, is user programmable alarm levels. And when you install the engine monitor, uh, make sure that you hook the alarm output to something that you can't miss, like a big red light sitting right in the center of your scan. <laughs> Most of them will have like a, a master alarm. So you have a light. You don't know what the alarm is. You just know there's an alarm. Right, right. So but it you, makes you, you look, look over the, at the instrument. Makes you look at the instrument, yeah. Because normally the, the, these instruments are, are installed on the right side of the panel that are not really in, in, in directly in your scan because you're, you're looking at the flight instruments primarily. And so when the engine monitor senses that something is out of limits, it needs a way to tell you that you can't ignore. And in a perfect world, you'd have both both a, a, a visible and an oral alarm, but at, at least a, a a visible alarm that's with a, you know that's a light that's positioned where you can't miss it, right in front of you, in the middle of your scan someplace. And if you can if you can mount it closer to you, that's. That's a really good option. Like in the center console would be great under your radios. Yeah, yeah, something closer. If you get the non-primary, like Mike was talking about, you can pretty much do anything you want to with it. It's really nice. Get all the same data. They don't weigh all that much. I don't know that there's any manufacturer of these that's bad. Yeah, I agree. You know, there's all sorts of different features, different shapes. You different can get the prices. square one, different prices, round. and Right. Real estate but, has something to do with it, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the panel, yep. because like the the JPI 730 and 830, which I like a lot, they're, they, they're rectangular and they take like a hole and a half. <laughs> yeah. But you can get a the Insight, you know, will fit right in a standard Three and or an eighth inch hole. Yeah. Isn't a Garmin two seventy five is the yeah, is GI two seventy five and and the C, CGR thirty P the Electronics yeah. International yeah. is a really really, really nice good. instrument. Yeah. So so real estate is really important. Having just put two engine monitors in two aircraft, yeah, I had to consider where it would fit. Was it in my? Could I get it close enough where I could see it? Another thing that I think is that I don't know about you, but my eyesight's not as good as it used to be. So. 
So the 275, I, I don't know what the display looks like, but I think I might want a bigger display. So being able to see it and liking how the things are presented, the um, I just put um, a, a G3X 17 inch, which can go horizontal or vertical. And I'm just using it for engine monitor, not for everything else that it can do, I'm trying to keep the price down. And um, that's a nice big display that fit in my panel really well. And I felt like it was maybe a little bit farther away than I wanted, but it was big enough that I should be able to see things clearly and get the information that you I want. You say it's 17 inches? I seven think it's inch. a seven. Oh, it's, it's seven mm. inch, isn't it? GDU oh. 7. I was say 17 inches, you ought to get Netflix on it. Yeah, maybe it is the seven inch. I, it's, it's fairly small and rectangular. I, I'm... You got the wrong I, number. I yeah. assume she meant seven. I just got to let yeah. it go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> let me get yeah, my I, ruler I kept out. thinking yeah, about it. Sorry. Say, what, what other but, features are there available? The, the other thing you want to think of, if you're going to go all in right off the bat, it's it's great. But if you're going to go in and say, oh, I just want EGT, CHT, and fuel flow as a starter and then add other features later, be sure that's an option. And, and I'm, I may be wrong, so all you guys that are Insight fans, I could be wrong. If you get the G2, it is not easily upgradable to a G3 or a G4. You can't always add all those options. I, I may be wrong on that, but I, I think I'm correct. Yeah, fuel, fuel, flow, is, fuel flow is very important. Mm-hmm. Very helpful and, and for also, troubleshooting. And also, after reporting on, on, on a few forced landings due to uh, loss of oil pressure, I, I would think an oil pressure sensor where you can get an alarm if oil pressure gets below the bottom of the green. We, we've just seen a bunch of airplanes come out of the sky, typically because like a mechanic forgot to tighten a B-nut. That seems to be like a, <laughs> a, a, a big one, especially on Lycoming's with remote-mounted coolers where there's too many B-nuts. Mm-hmm. The more the more data you can get, the better. But they all have a lot yeah, of data. They all have a like lot. We were just looking at one where Mike was astonished. What are these things? I don't even know. <laughs> oh what yeah, that, that, that thing. That thing. That yeah, was. From, was that a Dynon that we were looking at? No, it was a G three X. Is a G three? Oh, it was a G three X. Holy mackerel! Information overload. It was. Um, as, as an engineer, but, I, but, I never believe that you can have too much data. There you go. Yeah, but, oh, I mean, you're think, an engineer. I would think, have I would have totally changed my tone had I known when that. When you from configure the, the engine monitor and decide what sensors to put on it, think about what what things you would like to be alarmed <laughs> if they go out of uh, out of range, and you know, so like oil pressure is 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 one of those things you'd really like to get knocked upside the head if 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 the oil pressure drops below the bottom of the grain. In that same vein, uh, knowing that the alternator is still producing current would be helpful. Well, so I have a little different. What kind of engineer are you? Let's <laughs> got to establish this. Mechanical. Mechanical. I would, uh, the current output to me is not particularly important. And I'm an, I'm an old school avionics guy. From way back when. No, the bus voltage is what's important. The, the voltage is what you want to that, know. That, that tells you whether you're on battery Everything. power or alternator power. Yeah. If, if it's putting out 14 volts, it's doing its job. You don't care how much current it's putting right. out. Right. And, and a lot of a lot of airplanes do have a, a low volt light or something like that. that but um, Yeah, that's usually too late. But <laughs> Your radio starts sounding weird by then. Yeah. And the, knowing what the current is, and that's, you know, your airplane has an amp meter. 
And all the Cessna single engines all have an amp meter. I don't know why they chose an amp meter. Back in the day, It to me, a voltmeter was the, the simplest thing. But anyway, the, the voltmeter, if you had to choose between the two, and almost all of them, even the simplest, will give you voltage because it it's monitored. It has to have voltage to operate, and it's a real simple circuit to have a voltmeter display. Yeah, all, all all of the engine monitors will 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 monitor bus voltage because that that doesn't require a sensor. That's that's it, you know the thing is powered by the bus, and it it it's going to measure the bus voltage. You don't have to have a shunt located somewhere in the airplane. What about touching on sensors? Um, are there different? Types of sensors. I mean, is there? Uh, we talked about the different types of THT probes, but what about fuel flow sensors? Are there different styles of those? All fuel flow sensors are made by a company named FlowScan, and they're they're all uh, they're they're all all the same. This they 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 have a monopoly, and the transducers are pretty much the same. You're not going to have a lot of choice. If you buy Garmin, you can pretty much use anybody's sensor and wire it up to your Garmin. But if you get EI or JPI, they will come with sensors, transducers, all that stuff. Don't over torque anything. Just, I, I might know a guy. But you know, the choice, the, the choice of a uh, engine monitor is a very personal thing. You know, like, like for example, the, the insight instruments have a, a, a very different looking display than the others, and some people love it, some people hate it. I, I, I'm not particularly fond of it, but some people just think it's the cat's meow. So, boy, that's an yeah. old phrase. Yeah, <laughs> it must find be dating a, me. Find a wonderful place to put it in your panel, though, where it's up, up where you can see it, part of your scan. That's really helpful. And don't forget to download your data often. Oh yes, it's download. not just a real time monitor; yeah. it's a recording device. Yeah, it's very powerful for troubleshooting. You don't have to download after each flight, but download all of your flights. Yeah. That, that history is really One, important. Once a month would be really good habit to yeah. get into. When you go out on a Saturday to, you know, pet and groom the airplane, it's a good time. And then some of the engine monitors record their data on an SD card. And if you don't have an SD card plugged in, then they don't record. So that yeah, that, be, that that would be yeah. unfortunate too. So. Yeah, we've, Garmin has no seen a lot board, of that. Yeah, Garmin has no onboard uh, memory, and I think the Insight also requires a card. I'm yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure I you're right. So. Yeah, the, the the G series is yep. an SD card, but the JPI so has make, internal make, memory, and they won't complain if you don't plug one in. They'll they just don't happily, ever tell you. They'll just happily not record the data. Yeah. And you want to set the record rate to one per second. Fast. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you want, and it, if you have a JPI, you can make it record. Uh, is that JPI or EI? You can make them record even faster, but it eats up the memory, huge. So once a second is pretty good. Cool. Well, now we made it clear as mud. And have you made up your mind yet? <laughs> well, uh, it, that depends. You'll have to let me know who uh, gets in touch about a sponsorship. <laughs> now you got to do some shopping okay well, <laughs> sponsors aren't always the best they're just well, the ones with the money paul now sally forth and pick an engine monitor <laughs> yeah and report back we want to hear <laughs> what you found <laughs> will do i appreciate it 
Yeah. All right. We appreciate the call, Paul. Oh, and one more thing. Oh. Uh-oh. Um, I, I don't know what your timetable is on this, but um, they often offer big discounts on these oh. things at, like Sun and Fun and Oshkosh. So yes. you might want to time it to take advantage of that. That's yeah, a good, good point. thinking. Yep. 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 I did that. A couple hundred bucks. Can't go wrong. No, definitely not. Cool. Well, thanks for the question. We love yep. talking about engine monitors. <laughs> it's something we know. Yeah. Thanks for letting us geek out on something we don't have to think about. That's right. <laughs> happy to do it. Okay. Right. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Our next question is from Lori, who isn't sure if she should trust her engine. Go ahead, Lori. Basically, we have a brand new, newly inspected engine. It had broken a push rod, and so we decided to send it into a major engine shop for an inspect and repair as necessary. And it it flew well for a while. I mean, we're only like maybe 50 hours after that engine. But when the weather got cooler, I was doing my run-up. And the engine started to run roughly when I pulled the carb heat. And that was strange. So what we finally deduced was that in this narrow range of RPMs, like uh, 1,400 to 1,600, it runs roughly unless we have it at uh, peak. We've leaned it to peak RPM. Now, our airfield's at 7,200 feet. So we always lean. I don't think I've ever run it uh, full rich. <laughs> and uh, so if you leave it there at... Uh, peak RPM, it runs smoothly throughout its whole ground run range, you know, below 1,000 to, you know, 21, 2,200, wherever we pull it back. But as we enrich it, like we do for maximum power for takeoff, it begins to run roughly in this RPM range. And so it doesn't matter if you've gotten there by changing to one mag, pulling the car peak, pulling the throttle. And we think that, well, this did come on when the temperature dropped from like 70s or 80s down to 50s and it doesn't seem to happen after we've landed after a flight so there's some temperature dependency here but it's not like it's just really when the engine's really cold um you know we had it on the ground playing with it for half an hour and you know it it was still showing this problem so my question is what else should we look at can i trust this is this just the way things are going to be it had a rebuilt carburetor, rebuilt mags when they did the inspection. That was going to be my question if they did something, if they did something with the carburetor. That's about the RPM. It's a little it does, higher, but it's not too far from I mean, if you, switches if, from if, low if this is all happening at, at a field elevation of 7,200 RPM, I mean, I, I, I can't help but think maybe this is perfectly normal. Well, but it didn't do it before. No, it didn't do it before. This is new after we got the engine back and the temperatures yeah. got cooler. So, but, Paul, you... But, you know, if if you're not... I mean, you should always be lean to, to maximum RPM or leaner for ground operations, including the run-up. I mean, when you pull the carb heat, it, it drastically enriches the mixture. So if you're already rich when you do it, it 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 can enrich in the mixture to the point that combustion may not occur in 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 one or more cylinders. What kind of airplane is this? It's a 172RG. It has a Lycoming engine. Ah, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. 
Paul Paul was on to something about the rebuilt carb and the accelerator. You were going to well, talk about the two regimes that it operates yeah, in? There's a transition from it. Now, I'm not a 172RG engine guy, and I don't see Lycoming's much anymore, but I'm pretty sure that it transitions through different jets in the carburetor. And so let me ask you a question. When you, when you start the engine and you're taxing, do you lean doing ground operations or do you just lean prior to takeoff? Uh, no, after it started and it's running smoothly, which is, you know, very, very shortly, we just, we yeah. pull it back and lean it. Not precisely, but, you know, to, yeah, just some, it looks yeah. about right, you know. Yeah, the TLR system. And, and it'll Good usually, job. right. And it'll <laughs> usually stumble if I forget to enrich it a little before I start to taxi. Yeah. I, it seems to me, I'm agreeing with, with Mike. I think this may be somewhat normal. You didn't experience it before. You had a different carburetor. Things were set up a little bit different, Little maybe different jets in the carburetor, different float set up. I mean, it's just different. And the fact that it has a little vibration as you pass through that RPM, I don't think that would be a, a particular concern. I won't tell you what my engine does when I pass through that RPM, but it, it's pretty exciting. But I don't have a carburetor, so I can't blame it on the carburetor. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and Lycoming actually even came out, not for, specifically for this engine, but for ground runs, for doing your mag checks, they recommend leaning to max RPM before you do a mag check on the restart 172s and 182s and 206s. And and the run-up is typically at 2,000 RPM, 1,800, 1800 2000. 2,000, yeah. And you'll go, I'm, you know, we used to, and you still can if you get in one of those restart airplanes and do a mag check at full rich. It'll be 200 to 250 RPM drop, and that was normal. And if you lean it, it'll be 80 RPM drop. It's a it's a dramatic difference. Yeah, I always lean to max RPM for my run up. Yeah, but, I, but leaning to max RPM for taxi round is good. You too. did too, right? Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure that they were doing that too. It's in the POH, so. And and you know, look, if you're taking off from a low altitude airport then we use an excessively rich mixture to provide additional detonation margin. But if you're taking off from a 7,200-foot <laughs> airport, there is you know, you're, 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 at, you're, you're at, at, at low cruise power <laughs> when at you're best. at full throttle. So maximum RPM is exactly where you want to be. Okay, how That's about cooling? Point. Do we need to, to worry about the engine getting too hot if we're at peak rpm yeah. or just you, always, you always have to worry about it but my my guess is it's not going to be a problem because you're not making as much power yeah as you because would at sea level. Be, be, yeah because you're not you're not you're making and you can monitor 70 percent power or less yeah you you lean to the max power take off and as you're taking off in in the initial climb out if the chts are coming up a little bit you can increase the mixture rich in it as needed to keep the CHTs down. It, it would be worth doing an RPM rise test and seeing if the idle um, mixture is correct is correctly adjusted. Um, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. But that's pretty much the only adjustment you have on that carburetor is, is the idle mixture adjustment. So it might but, be too rich, is what you're saying? Or Well, you you know, the at, at, at low idle with a warm engine, you slowly retard the mixture and watch the tachometer. And you should get a, a, a small RPM rise before the engine starts to stumble and threaten to quit. 
And that RPM rise should be somewhere in the 50 RPM vicinity. And and if it's if you get a much bigger rise, if you get more than 100 RPM rise, then then that says that the idle mixture is too rich. And if you don't get a rise, or you get way less than 50 or RPM, dies. or or if it just dies, then <laughs> then the idle lean. mixture is too lean. And it's just a little uh, a little needle valve adjustment on the carburetor, and that's pretty much the only adjustment that there is on the carburetor. And and that's something that the carburetor guys, when they overhaul the carburetor, can't really adjust. It has to be adjusted on the airplane. Um, so it is possible that that the 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 new carburetor was installed, but the but there was never an RPM rise test to adjust that so that would be worth doing and it, just the next time you come in from a flight and you have a nice warm engine throttle it back to low idle which is typically like 800 rpm or something and and then very slowly retard the mixture and see how much rpm rise you get before the engine starts to stumble it it actually <clears throat> it should when you pull the throttle all the way back it should idle about 600 to 650 what Mike is saying is true. At 800 is a good place to do this test, but I'll do presentations at some of these events with the high performance airplanes. And I'll find out people think that their idle speed is a thousand RPM because that's what they use to taxi. And their brakes like, are worn. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, no, no. But <laughs> that is, that is another adjustment on the carburetor. I, I lied. It's not, that that's, that's the only fuel related adjustment, but, but the, uh, Idle RPM stop is 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 also as an adjustable stop screw. So you want both of those set correctly. Uh, you want to be able to pull it back to the 600 RPM idle speed, so that when you're on final and you need the engine to come all the way back, so you can actually get slow enough to land, it will do that. And the mixture that Mike is talking about, it's a pain to do because you typically have to take cowling on and off. Every time you make the adjustment, you don't want to do it on a cold engine. It needs to be on a warm engine. But yeah, that that should definitely be checked. But in terms of the what we were saying before, the takeoff and climb, I think it's probably great. Well, well, Lori, I sympathize with you because I don't like change. And if it's different when you get it back <laughs> from the shop and something's different, that bugs me yeah. to no end. So sure. I, I, I completely understand, but I, hopefully we... Put your fears at rest here. Yeah, get get the idle speed and idle mixture checked. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you. Okay, yeah. thanks so much for calling in. Our next question is from John, who might be experiencing morning sickness. Hopefully not. Let's find out. Hey, John. Hi. Hey, thanks for doing this pod- podcast. I've really learned a lot, you know. We do too. Um, so, so not to beat the uh, leaning and lead topic totally into the ground, but um, my partners and I have an RV7A uh, with uh, about 345 hours on the airframe and engine, which is an O360 uh, carbureted. Um, and we've got an EMS, uh, Dynon EMS. Uh, I've been bore scoping the cylinders um, at each condition inspection, and we've been noticing an increase of lead buildup uh, including on the exhaust valve stems, at least one of them. I try to peek in there. I don't get photos. 
So anyway, we, we do lean aggressively for taxi. Um, and since hearing your podcast about being able to run carbureted Lycomings, Lena Peak, we've been doing that in cruise, and that's been maybe the last 20, 30 hours. So I'm thinking that where this lead came from is a combination of not running lean uh, for a few hundred hours. Um, and then also our CHTs have never been up to the level that you recommend for avoiding sticking valves. Uh, you know, in the winter, they're they're like around 300. And uh, in the summer, even, they barely get up to 360 on one or two of the cylinders. So um, I got concerned uh, because the engine was running rough for a couple of minutes after start. And uh, a friend of ours who has an RV9A with an 0320 was using something called Decalin, which I think is uh, the same as STP at his mechanics recommendation. And he said that, well, this can uh, prevent lead buildup and even clear out lead. So I was wondering what your take on that is. And I've also been told that just running Lena Peak can reduce lead. So I'm wondering about all that stuff. To, to the best of my knowledge, nothing can clean off lead other than emery cloth or- yeah, Or a chisel. Scotch-Brite or something. <laughs> Um, I, I don't think there's any way you can remove lead once it's once it's built up, but but I have to say, looking at those photographs, that's that's one of the least leady looking lycomings yeah. I've ever seen. It's um, clean. The I don't know. Making good I don't contact. know why, but lycoming engines seem always to have more lead buildup than continental engines. Um, when when we look at them under the borescope, I don't know why, and and though that engine seems for a Lycoming, seems to have very few deposits. You yeah. should see pictures of my engines. They don't look like that. <laughs> it looks like some gold-plated, you know, encrusted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This no, looks these clean. look pretty I, good to me. I, I did see the white spots on the valve stems that you were mentioning, but it doesn't look really that bad. Yeah, that's the one right there. Yeah. Yeah, we saw, oh, we saw it on bad. the edge a little bit, but, and, the, and, but the and, underside of the valve looks yeah, you look at you look at that picture that's up there now. The underside of the valve, you can see the black contact area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's and it's, it's it looks like it's making really good contact with the seat, if, as you know, as far as we can see on the, on the photograph. So keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, it looks good to me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, that's that's good. The thing is, all those deposits in there, as long as the Exhaust valve is making good contact with the valve seat, which yours appear to. That's that dark ring. Uh, you'll see it on the seat and on the valve. If that contact area is good and solid and continuous, the other gunk that's in there, gunk, it's not really gunk, the crusty stuff that builds up in the on top of the piston sometimes and maybe in the cylinder head, they really don't hurt anything. It's just kind of there. It's reducing your combustion area, though. So yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the only part yeah. of this whole thing that bothers me at all is the fact that you say your CHTs are quite low, mm -hmm. and um, I'm I'm wondering if there's anything you can do about that. I take it that the RV doesn't have cowl flaps, right? No, we don't have cowl flaps. Um, and one thing that was recommended to me by another pilot who had did have a case of stuck valves is to. Uh, block the uh, air outlet at the bottom of the towel, uh, you know, block it partially. Ex to, exactly to, what uh, I was about it. to suggest. 
Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Okay. The only, my only hesitation about that is that it's really easy to get over 400 uh, CHT and climb, particularly on number three. And so I, I kind of have to baby it on climb out, you know, even in the winter to, to keep the CHTs reasonable. Yeah. I, 420 is acceptable on a Lycoming in, in climb. I wouldn't want to go above that. And you might, you might want to block it off with like duct tape or something. <laughs> Uh, it is an experimental. An, just as an experiment <laughs> to see, get get the blockage to where where you like it, because you're basically adjusting the the cooling airflow and the cooling drag. It's too and, bad. There and then no if you flaps. can if you can find a sweet spot, then then you can get rid of the duct tape and put a piece of aluminum there. So something to consider. We talked about blocking the outlet. You might also, as opposed to that, partially block the inlet, which is what most most people do. At matter of fact, on the Cessna, like the Skylane and 172s, the winterization kit is actually a piece of aluminum that you screw onto the cowling air inlet that partially blocks the air, how much air comes in. And as an experimental, you can experiment with maybe blocking off part of the right air inlet or part of the left air inlet, as opposed to both of them. And you can change the airflow through the engine. You may find that you can do something that actually helps that number three, which is the right rear. Typical Lycoming engine, it's it's going to run the hottest. Uh, on my twin Comanche, they did. But that was, I guess that was partly because that's where the oil cooler was. But at any rate, you can do a lot of things. Careful and slow application, small bit at a time to see what the results are. And you may also find that blocking the inlets may make it more efficient in cooling because there is a, a, a magic ratio between the inlet area and the outlet area. There was a great article written in, I'm not sure what publication, but I have a scan of it talking, about, it was written by an engineer who did all kinds of research about the, you know, the frontal area of the inlet and then the exhaust area and you want a, a certain ratio and if you look at high-performance aircraft like a Lancer 360, that the cowlings are, you know, modified. They're um, they have these very small round inlets, and you'd think, wow, there's not enough air going in that engine to provide cooling, but it's actually tuned to give you just the right amount of cooling. So smaller isn't necessarily less cooling. Smaller could increase the airflow. So just Racing do people think like this. Do everything in small <laughs> increments is what I would recommend. Um, I, I played around with my Skybolt, which has these big open inlets, and um, I think I was able I was able to partially block some of the air going into one cylinder one, and it forced more air up over the cylinder and into the back of the engine where I needed it. So it's kind of fun to do on an experimental. I don't do that on my John is certified. Is, is your oil cooler? Does it get its air from from behind it, cylinder three, like Paul's twin twin Comanche did? Uh, yeah. Oh, so I, I yeah. wonder what I wonder whether whether uh, partially blocking the the airflow into the oil cooler. I, I don't know what your what your oil temperatures are, are are like, but if you seem to have plenty of oil cooling, you might possibly want a winterization kit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd... I, I put a shutter over the outlet to the oil cooler um, huh. in the summer. In the summer. In the summer. Oh, in, oh, sorry, winter. Sorry. In the winter. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. And when you when you close when you close that 
shutter to to reduce the airflow through the oil cooler does that help the cooling of cylinder three have you ever noticed well you know i haven't checked that it that, probably that would, does that would be that would be interesting to 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 look at yep there's all kinds of data you can collect more you excuses can just... to fly the other thing we did is uh, the baffling kit uh, had these vertical plates in front of each front cylinder Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh-huh. And because we were we were uh, we were also getting uh, number one and two a little too warm, we removed that one. And I, I've read since that that can have the opposite effect. That actually yeah, that's, th- those that's plates usually not cool. a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Because we're 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 not trying to cool those cylinders with ram air. We're 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 trying to 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 just get high pressure on top of the engine and have the airflow vertical from top to bottom. So that the reason for those plates is is to not allow the front cylinders to be cooled by by the air blast because because that that's basically robbing cooling Wasting air from air. the rear yeah. cylinders. Yeah, well thanks a lot for Appreciate all of that to input. I got 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 a lot to work on. Okay, and thanks for the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the call, John. Okay, take care. Our next question is from Steve, who has found something about engine monitors he doesn't like, as if that's even possible. Go ahead, Steve. (laughs) Yeah, I guess my complaint or concerns or questions are about digital revolutions that are happening Mm -hmm. in in our cockpits. We operate a PA32300 with an IO540 K1A5, and we have a CGR30P uh, engine monitor. And... The Lycoming operator's manual lists numbers for the oil pressure as max 95, min 55, idling 25, start up and warm up at 115 PSI. The POH has different numbers for some reason. It has 60 to 90 for a green range, green arc. A yellow of 25 to 60, that would be the lower range. The red line minimum of 25 and a red line maximum of 90. Here's the problem those cause is that our engine monitor came configured with um, master warning and master caution capability, red and yellow lights respectively. And our airplane, when it's cold, exceeds the 90 PSI POH number by about 5 to 7 PSI. So what happens is on takeoff, it jumps to 95 or 97 PSI. And our master warning light, which is right above our C, our, our G5, you know, our, our primary flight display, starts flashing. Now, most private pilots have no idea what a master warning or caution is for. And but a blinking flashing red light right in your face really should mean something, right? I think even the average knucklehead like myself would say, okay, reject the takeoff and figure out what's going on. But now with this new digital capability, there it is, mm-hmm. it's just become a nuisance light and we've just grown to ignore it. Now, if something else was going on and we just ignore it, that's a problem. So, so since my original question that I submitted to Ian was, why is the POH different from the Lycoming manual? And should we be able to change the settings in our engine monitor? 
Well, since submitting this, I have discovered that yes, you can change the engine monitor ranges for pressure, but it has to be done by the manufacturer of the engine monitor. And you have to submit a form, which is signed by an A&P that says, yes, you can use these numbers. And there's a nominal fee. <laughs> it's called a CYA form because, <laughs> <laughs> because they don't want the liability at the engine monitor place. They want to put it on your mechanic. So that yeah, makes that total sense. This is a, a, a pet peeve of mine uh, that um, <laughs> some engine monitor manufacturers have made the alert limits non-user programmable, which is, um, and, and they that they hardwire them to to the manufacturer's red lines. Uh, the fact that you've got a yellow alert too is a, is a plus. That that's helpful, but it's still you don't have control over where it goes off. So if you decide that you 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 have a personal CHT maximum of 420 degrees, you can't just go in there and say, well, I'm going to set the CHT alarm at 420. With some manufacturers, you can do that, like JPI, and some manufacturers have chosen not to do that. Now, there, there's some valid reason for that for engine monitors that are primary instrument replacements, where you're ripping a whole bunch of factory gauges out and putting the engine monitor in. But the CGR30P is typically not a primary replacement device. It's a supplemental device. I I saw a whole bunch of steam gauges in your airplane that that looked like they were put there there by the factory (laughs) when Piper built the airplane. So in a a situation like that, um, I mean, I, I just think there's no justification for the manufacturer not making those user programmable. Having said that, even even if they have to be set by by the engine monitor manufacturer, they, they should be willing to set it to what you tell them to set it. And apparently, apparently they are. You said that you can submit a form, send them send the instrument in, and they'll they'll re re uh, flash the, the the firmware. It's a shame you can't do that in the field. It's a shame you have to send the engine monitor back to do that. But at least they're, at least, at least they're willing to do that. Oh, sorry. Okay. Actually, they, they send you a thumb drive and it reprograms it in your hangar. Oh, but they okay. charge you for oh, that. Oh, so you right. don't have to. Yeah. But they charge you for the thumb drive. Oh, then, then yeah. that's not that's not so bad. Do you get to keep the thumb drive? I mean, they probably. It only works. It only works once. <laughs> they probably don't charge you that Cheap. much. Maybe, maybe you can reverse engineer it and. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very expensive thumb drive. That's all I'll say. Yeah. But, 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 you know, just from, from my meager knowledge of Lycoming engines, the POH sounds like it's just completely wrong. I, I don't, I have no idea what, where Piper got those numbers. Why would the POH numbers. be more conservative, Mike, than the, uh, the I mean, it's it... just, it's just wrong. It's, it's just, it's just, it's just wrong to say that 90 PSI is redline in a Lycoming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that I mean, the normally Lycoming green arc go, goes, goes up to ninety five. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and well, the red line should idle be idle. This engine in the winter when you first started it below yeah. ninety psi. And I mean, if you know, if you if you if if you just couldn't solve this problem, then the solution would probably be to adjust the the oil pressure down just enough so it doesn't quite trigger the red light. But but that shouldn't. You know that shouldn't be. That that's the tail wagging the dog for an engine monitor manufacturer to be telling you how you should adjust your oil pressure just seems so wrong, and so on so many levels. 
and that led to the second part of my question is that, um, well, you know, why are the POH numbers different than the Lycoming numbers? Yeah. Can anyone explain who is making the choices regarding the presentation and intended use of this digital information? And is there any standard to which the manufacturers of these devices are being held? Well, hang on. So your digital information is aftermarket. So that has nothing to do with, yeah, with the original, with the original what yeah. Piper did in their certification. It's really not that uncommon for the airframe manufacturer to put different numbers on, an, on engine parameters than the engine manufacturer does. Columbia did that. If you look at their, their maximum fuel flows for a Columbia 400, in the limitation section of the manual, it'll say the maximum fuel flow I'm rounding these off, or like 36 to 38 gallons an hour for takeoff. But then you flip the page and it talks about the markings for the gauges and it'll say redline is at 40 gallons an hour. So even within the POH, it has two different numbers as maximum. And Continental says for that engine, 36 to 38 is your maximum fuel flow. What Columbia kind of sneakily they snuck in that they need a little bit more fuel flow for the climb to keep the CHTs down. So they added another couple of gallons an hour and put Redline at 40. Works just fine. So I don't know why Piper did this, but it seems to me if, and I don't know, is this an instrument installed as primary? Well, I would think yes. <laughs> I mean, have all, the, have all the Redline There's no manifold pressure. There's no oh, yeah. manifold pressure gauge left. There's okay. none of yeah. cylinder head, none of that oh, okay. tomato so, flames. None of that exists anymore except for the CGR 30P. Okay, what so are it's, all those little in, square gauges that I saw in those the are video? fuel gauges. That is the fuel gauges. Yeah, fuel <laughs> quantity. Yeah, they have fuel, yeah, fuel quantity. Okay. Okay. So we didn't we didn't get that option, but you could install four fuel sensors yeah. and then have okay. it monitored then, then, then they have some, they, they they it is uh, it's primary i actually think that's probably good they 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 probably are required because it's primary to 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 factory have factory control over where those alerts are and they're they do have the facility for you to update them in your hangar with the thumb drive they provide and if they say send us a form Signed by an A and P, we'll 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 send you a thumb drive. That sounds pretty reasonable to me. Thank you so much for everything you guys do, and uh, this is like my brush with greatness moment. You know, oh, you run into General Yeager in an <laughs> elevator. I got to talk with Mike Bush. This is fantastic, <laughs> and Colleen and Paul. This is wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. We're all here. Okay. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks for calling in. <laughs> Have a great day. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Well, that's a wrap on another podcast. Did we get anything right? And what did we get wrong? We would love to hear from you. Just keep sending us those tricky questions and try to stump us. You can send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. We'll see ya. Bye-bye, everybody.